Amen. It's good to see you all again this morning, gathered in God's house around God's word. As Pastor Reese has already said, there's an offering basket just to your left as you go out. If it was me, I'd sat it right in the middle of the floor. You need to literally trip over it to go past. Do give as the Lord has enabled you and prospered you. you know, don't be like the old hymn, thank you Lord for saving my soul. Here's 10p for making me whole. <laughs> give as the Lord has enabled you and prospered you. Let's pray. Just <clears throat> Father, we thank you this morning that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His compassions do not come to an end. Your mercies are new every morning. Therefore, we look to you, we trust you, and we have hope. We thank you for the hope that is ours in the doing and in the dying of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we're not left in the dark. We thank you, Lord, that we're not left without light. We're not left without a map. We're not left without an anchor. We're not left without a guide. We're not left without a picture of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray now for your word as it goes forth. We ask that by your spirit you would take it and plant it deep within each and every heart. Lord, you know the lives of every single person who has gathered in this house this morning. Lord, you know the situations from which we have come. You know the circumstances to which we will return when this service concludes. And Lord, we ask for your help by your spirit that you would be with your people, that you would be with families, that you would be with individuals, that you would be with folk who are gathered here this morning in their quiet moments, that you would address their concerns, that you would allay their fears all by your spirit through your word in order that Jesus Christ himself might be glorified. For it's in his lovely name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 10, please. We're continuing our series in Matthew's gospel that the pastor launched last September when he brought us the vision for the next few years under the overarching title of the invitation. We're looking at Matthew's gospel and it falls to me this morning to deal with Matthew chapter 10 and the first 15 verses or so. Matthew chapter 10. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. 
Require no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the labourer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or time. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that time. Amen. Matthew's gospel, brothers and sisters, is the gospel of the kingdom. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, he began to preach. He did so with the words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then in the Sermon on the Mount, he gave us a fine-grained, vivid picture of the beauty of life within that kingdom. In chapters 8 and chapters 9, Matthew highlights the dramatic events in the lives of individuals as the kingdom explodes in power in the region of Capernaum and around the Sea of Galilee. Now as we turn the page into chapters 10 to 12, he focuses on the twin dominant realities of kingdom life. The twin dominant realities of life within the kingdom. Number one, our mission. Number two, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The emphasis, brothers and sisters, of these chapters is not so much this this is what we should do. The emphasis is more like this is who we are. If we have been swept into the kingdom, it's not this is what you do, but this is who you are. As those who belong to Christ, here is our deepest responsibility, our highest privileges. These chapters take us to the very core of our identity. And so in chapter 10, Matthew tells us, this is our mission. There are some lessons for us to learn from these verses. Actually, brothers and sisters, these verses and others like them can be very difficult to preach from because you struggle to know how to handle them. Because we aren't meant to take everything that we've read this morning in the first 15 verses of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 10, sorry, and make this the universal requirement for how Christians are to do ministry. I mean, these verses, this is, after all, a specific trip designed by Christ for the twelve apostles. It is for a limited time. The disciples all went out, and they returned to Jesus. They're not still there engaged in this mission's trip. They did it for a time. They went, and they came back. The Lord Jesus here is assuming a certain type of ministry among the Jews, in a certain place in Galilee, under certain conditions in the first century world. So the takeaway message this morning is not right. After the service, I want you all to pair up into groups. 
And we're going to head out now and we're going to go two by two and actually just take the clothes that you have on your back. For some of you women that would be very difficult. And Martina went for one night with Emily and the car was full. I said, you're going for one night? One night? I mean, what's going to happen that you need all this stuff? So we're going to all just pair up. We're all going to head out. Take the clothes that you've got in your back. You don't need to go and get any other shoes. You don't need any bags. Don't take your debit card. And we're all going to go out and we're going to start knocking doors. And we're going to ask if there's somebody there that'll take us in when it gets dark. And while you're going, why don't you heal the sick, uh, cast out some demons. And why not, if you come across a wick, why not you just go on in there and raise the dead. This is not a model for successful ministry in our day. The Lord Jesus does not expect that all ministry would be done in exactly the same way with all these sorts of requirements. In fact, when you get to the end of Matthew's Gospel in chapter 28, with the Great Commission, Christ says, and Christ says, Go you therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And there in Matthew 28, the Lord Jesus gives very general, very general commands which transfer across all cultures, all times, everywhere, all the time. But here in Matthew 10, we've got some very specific requirements for this short-term missions trip with the 12 disciples. So as I say, brothers and sisters, it's hard to look at these verses and say, this is what we need to do. On the other hand, all scripture is God-breathed, and therefore it is profitable. There are in this passage some underlying principles that give shape and definition to what Christian ministry should be like in any age, indeed, and in every age. Just by way of introduction, brothers and sisters, can I say that prayer is non-negotiable? Prayer is non-negotiable when it comes to the life and ministry of the church or indeed of ministry. We've seen this at the end of chapter 9 and verse 38. Pastor Reese dealt with it last Sunday. Pray you therefore the Lord of the harvest. The Lord knows the great need that is in the world. And he has taught his disciples to look to God for the meeting of that need. That's why verse 38 of chapter 9 says, Therefore, pray earnestly the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers out into his harvest field. Prayer is essential. This is really the first step in developing a disciple. We all had to learn our total dependence upon God. And this is where we were when the Lord saved us. This is where we must remain as we walk with Christ. A continual understanding of our absolute total dependence upon God. But the Lord Jesus doesn't stop with prayer. In chapter 10 there's an action that accompanies prayer. An action that accompanies prayer. He called to him 12 disciples. He had hundreds of disciples. He called 12. Verse 1, they're called disciples. Verse 2, they're called apostles. He called to him his 12 disciples. I mean, just stop there and think of that. 
of all the great companies of men who have left their mark on the development and expansion of human history and especially the modern world, I personally believe the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ stand alone. I honestly believe that of all the groups of men who have redirected the stream of human history, none can compare to these men. They are introduced to us in the scriptures without fanfare. Very ordinary men. And what a list of men. And the rest of the gospels themselves, only half of these disciples even get a speaking role. And mostly it's just a walk-on part. They've got one line, they walk on, deliver it, and they walk off. Move on to the rest of the New Testament. And only one of the twelve, Peter, only his ministry and the continuance of it is recorded for us. There is no encouragement here to put these fellas into stained glass windows. Or erect statues to them or name churches in honor of their memory. The point, brothers and sisters, is the very opposite. Jesus takes a bunch of very ordinary fellas who with one exception, Judas Iscariot, you know Iscariot is not a surname. Do not think that Iscariot is a surname. It simply means the man from Kerioth. Judas, the man from Kerioth-ish, from Kerioth, Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, he was from Kerioth in the south. So with the exception of Judas Iscariot, all of these men were from a tiny little geographical area around Capernaum and Tiberias and the Sea of Galilee. They were not men of great worldly wisdom. They were not men of great worldly vision. They were not men who had been exposed to the marketplace of ideas in the great cities of the world like Rome or Athens. No, the Lord Jesus took unremarkable guys to carry on his mission. His mission. It's about him, not them or us. You see, when you look at these men, you've got to go beyond the men. You've got to go behind the men. To see the Lord using human instruments. Surely brothers and sisters that is the first and the most obvious lesson that we can learn from these first five verses. The Lord uses men. I mean it's the most obvious lesson and yet it's so obvious you could miss it. The Lord uses human instruments. That's an amazing thing to me in and of itself. And by that I don't simply mean, you know, that all things, whether angels or demons or principalities or powers, things visible or invisible, all things ultimately serve his pleasure and accomplish his will and establish his purpose. That is true, brothers and sisters, because God is sovereign. But what I'm saying here is this, that God has deliberately chosen to make men and women the special instruments that he's going to use in the most important service in the world. 
God has taken the treasure of the gospel. The message of Jesus Christ to save sinners. He has taken that message and he has not given it to angels. He has not given it to seraphim or cherubim or archangels. He has placed it, Paul says, within very ordinary clay pots. I mean, if God sent Gabriel and all of his angels this morning to the lower shankle to preach the gospel, men and women would be tempted to worship the messenger and miss the message. No, the Lord Jesus sends these men, insignificant men, taken from some of the most menial jobs at that time. He has taken these men made of the same clay, the same dust as all other men, with all of their drawbacks, all of their imperfections, all of their lack of promise and talent. God uses men and women. This treasure is hidden in old clay pots. As the ESV puts it in 2 Corinthians 4 and 7, I think, we have this treasure in old clay pots that the excellency of the power might be from God and not to us. I mean, if we were all talented, if we were all gifted, if we were all fantastically brilliant, people would look at us and say, well, it was the man that did it. Or it was the method that did it. No, it's the message that does it. I mean, you read Acts chapter 10 for a dull Sunday afternoon. You can read there of Cornelius, a centurion, an Italian. He had fallen in love with Judaism, fallen in love with the message of a God who saves. And he was seeking God. God heard his prayer. And God sent to Cornelius an angel. What a fantastic way to hear the gospel from the mouth of an angel. He would never embellish it with hidden motives. He would never have another agenda. He would never fumble his words. He would never misquote scripture. What a fantastic experience for Cornelius to hear the gospel from the lips of an angel. But he didn't. The angel came and told him to send for Peter who was staying with Simon the Tanner. <coughs> Angels aren't permitted to preach the gospel. And sometimes at funerals I go and People in their grief sometimes say, oh, I'm a loved one. They've become an angel. They haven't. We do not become angels. Angels want to be like us. They desire to look into these things. Send for the man. Brothers and sisters, nothing has changed since Matthew 10 and Acts chapter 10. God uses men and women to get out this message of the gospel. And listen, let that encourage you. Stand back this morning and realize that your weakness, your manhood, your womanhood, your humanity, with all of its imperfections, all of its lack of promise, the fact that we are made of the dust of the earth, it's not a hindrance. It's not a hindrance to the God of heaven using us in his work. Nor is it an excuse for you and I to sit back then and do nothing. Listen, brothers and sisters, the sooner we realize that salvation does not come like a lightning bolt out of heaven, despite men and women, or without the use of men and women, but that God actually takes you as you are, where you are, and others like us, and uses us to reach the lost. We are not spectators in the drama of redemption, nor are we onlookers in the work of God saving the lost. And the sooner we recognize that God is not going 
going to send revival out of the clear blue heavens while we all sit back and applaud. The sooner we realize that, the better. The Lord uses people just like us. In the sending out of these men, you'll notice in verse 1, as you'll see there, we're never going to reach verse 15, so don't worry about it. Maybe I'll continue it on in the second service. Get two goals. The Lord uses people. In sending out these men, you'll notice in verse 1, he gave them authority. He gave them authority. There's an action that accompanies prayer. He sent them out. But in our Lord's example, we see there's an authority that accompanies purpose. An action that accompanies prayer. And now there's an authority. There's an authority that accompanies purpose. This is a principle for all time. God grants us authority in keeping with our assignment. God grants us authority in keeping with our assignment. The Lord calls these men. He's going to send them out on a mission. And what does he do before he sends them out? He gives them authority to do what he's called them to do. He gives them authority to do what he's called them to do. Verse 1 tells you that he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. Again, brothers and sisters, just note that the authority that God gives for ministry, it is always for edification. Authority that God gives for ministry is always for edification. It is never for destruction, never. It is never to be exerted in a way that is self-exalting or self-centered and therefore destructive to the people who have to abide underneath it. That's the cult. That is not Christian ministry. The authority that God gives is always for edification. It's always for building up. It's always an authority that is given for service. Service. And that is true in all realms of authority. You think of your authority this morning, dad is a parent or mom is a parent. Your authority is for the building up of your kids. You and I will give an account someday of our God-given authority to the Lord for how we exercised it. And all the kids are going, ah, that's right, you tell them. It's for the building up of our kids. And I know you try your best, you try your best. You know, if your kids are coming toward you, you want to you make sure it's, they're, they're coming toward open arms. And if, if they're walking away, you want to make sure it's with a pat on the back rather than a, the other. So God-given authority, it's for building up. They're given authority to build up in the Lord. In the Lord, again, let me repeat it, brothers and sisters, it's about him, not them, or us. This is repeatedly underlined as Matthew turns to what is involved in this mission. You see, to be part of the kingdom is to be caught up in the mission that is launched by Jesus. You've seen that already in verse 1. It's even clearer when you get down to verse 7 and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message is Christ's message. The message is Christ's message. The method of backing it up is the same as well, even raising the dead and healing every conceivable affliction. 
This, brothers and sisters, is the launch phase of the mission of Christ, and it starts with a bang. And I think it's overreaching to assume that either Jesus or indeed Matthew is implying that is implying that raising the dead, for example, is to be an everyday occurrence. It's not even an everyday occurrence in the Gospels. And again, beloved, the central point is surely this, that the mission of Jesus is to be carried on by ordinary people just like us. And notice where they are to go in verses 5 and 6. Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. These men were living at a unique time in salvation history. And so Christ gives them a limited mission that reflects something of the special place that God did in the life and nation of Israel. Beloved, the gospel has always been for the whole world. That has always been true from Genesis to Revelation. The gospel is for the whole world. But during the Old Testament era, God had determined that the primary instrument that he would use for the advancement and the knowledge of himself would be a particular people, a particular nation. He made a covenant with them. He gave unique privileges to them. And now with the coming of his son, these disciples are to go first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel with the news that Jesus has come, God's son. Now Matthew has already given strong hints that the message of his coming is beginning to filter out to the Gentiles. At his birth, the Magi came, these pagan Gentile philosophers from the east. We've already seen the centurion coming for the healing of his servants. But now the focus falls on Israel. Notice they are the first, the first to be offered the gospel for free. That's the end of verse 8. You received without paying, give without pay. Jesus is also insistent that right from the get-go, we don't make any money from ministry. That's verses 9 and 10. Acquire no gold or silver, copper for your belt, no bag for your journey, or two coats, sandals, or a staff. The laborer, though, is worthy of his food. But he isn't to accumulate all sorts of benefits in kind, let alone to ask for money. We're not talking about paying pastors and stuff. That's a different issue. Of course men need paid to do the work of God. We can't muzzle, says Paul, the ox that treads out the corn. That's not what Christ is talking about here. The truth is, though, brothers and sisters, the mission of Jesus is always fatally compromised when money becomes the driver. In verse 11, on this first missions trip, they are to find someone who is sympathetic. That's the meaning of the word worthy. Make that home their base. Don't be running about from house to house. You know, the first village you go into, there's somebody there and they're sympathetic. And you go in and you bed down for the night and you realize they have a rake of wains that are up at five. The lady across the street has a big detached house. She has an ensuite bathroom and big soft towels. And you think, you know what? Maybe we jumped in here too quick. We'll stay here tonight. Tomorrow we'll slip over to the big house. We'll have our own ensuite and soft towels. Jesus says, no, don't do that. Don't be running about from house to house. Don't lose sight of the seriousness of the message either, brothers and sisters, that sits right at the heart of their mission. That's verses 14 and 15. 
If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable for the, land of, for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that time. See, brothers and sisters, the mission of the Lord Jesus, which launches here with these twelve, is serious. It is focused. It results in both judgment and salvation playing out. As we close this morning, let me say this. Christian ministry relies completely on God and not on ourselves. This is what we see as Jesus sends out these twelve. He wanted the disciples to recognize that they were weak, but he had power. They were helpless, but God could help. They could do nothing on their own, but God could do amazing things with them. He gave them authority. They did not have it. Jesus had it. He gave it to them. They were to get their power from God. They were to get their provisions from God. That's why Jesus said, no gold, no silver, no bag. You'll not need two coats. Just take the shoes that you've on. Just go knock on the door and my father will see to it that someone behind the door will take care of you. Because the overarching point of this mission's trip is this. It demonstrates that God is the one doing the mission, not the disciples. Hudson Taylor was the founder of the Chinese Inland Mission. He famously said, you can count on it. God's work, done in God's way, will never lack God's supply. And you talk about an ordinary man. Hudson Taylor began it. When he died, he left the Chinese Inland Mission, the DE host. When he died, it, he left it in the hands of Freddie Mitchell. Freddie Mitchell. I bet not a one of you has heard of Freddie Mitchell. And that illustrates what I'm saying. God took Freddie Mitchell from a chemist's shop in Bradford and done amazing things through the life of that man. The Bible, his biographer, sorry, says that Freddie Mitchell walked with God on that humdrum path and every day he climbed steadily in spiritual might with God. And Freddie Mitchell died actually in 1953 in a plane crash going back to China just north of Calcutta, India. Freddie Mitchell. See, brothers and sisters, it's so easy, and I battle with this in my own heart to rely on yourself, to think, you know what, I have preached now hundreds of times, I can do this. I have visited stacks and stacks of times, I, I can do this. It's so easy that you become so comfortable, the danger is you rely on what you're good at. If you have money, the great danger is you rely on your money. If you're good looking, that's not many of us. The danger is you rely on your looks. Beloved, listen, whatever your gift, whatever your strength, that's the danger you're tempted to rely on yourself. If Jesus dared to send out these 12, don't you think he can use you? These guys misunderstood his ministry. They got annoyed with him on the boat. They were frustrated when he looked around and wanted to know who touched me. They, they rolled their eyes. They were confused. They were bewildered. And yet Jesus says, yeah, I know you fellows go out, but we're not ready. I know you'll never be ready, but away you go. But I reckon, brothers and sisters, you're further along than these fellows, and yet Jesus sent them out. God does the work. 
And do you know what he uses? Not so much giftedness, which he does use. I'm not setting that aside, not for a minute. More than giftedness and talent, God uses weakness. If you're sitting here this morning and you think I have no confidence in myself, I don't think I could do anything of real significance for Jesus Christ, but I do trust that God by his spirit can do significant things, then you are the very one that God is looking for. The one indispensable requirement to be of use for God is faith. If you trust that God is powerful, if you trust that God provides, if you trust that God alone gives the increase, it doesn't matter whether you're 4, 14, 24, 54, 74, or 84, you may be exactly the person that God is looking for. May the Lord this morning bless his word to our own hearts for his honor and for his glory. Amen.